Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Politicana. Today we're in episode 168. My name is Tyler, of course my co-hosts Pratik and Nick here as well. Before we dive right into the news and stories of the week, please follow, please share the podcast. I know I say this every episode, it might be annoying, but it really helps us out and we appreciate it. So with that, let's dive right into it. So kicking it off, we're going to be talking about pretty much the, the most topical story this week. Are frozen embryos children or not? So Alabama's Supreme Court ruled that frozen embryos can be deemed, and this is the word they're using, can be deemed extrauterine children, which means it exists or forms outside of the, the uterus. Just meaning that these embryos, these frozen eggs, were fertilized but are not in an actual person, they could still be considered children. So three Alabama providers have paused IVF altogether with a legislator proposing legislation to clarify IVF status. IVF is a complex process involving hormone injection injections, egg retrieval, fertilization, embryo growth, and transfer or freezing. The ruling raises concerns about potential legal consequences and costs affecting both patients and practitioners. Approximately 97,000 infants were born through assisted reproductive technology in 2021. This is a very active technology, and this ruling is important. This is part of the fallout of having Roe v. Wade removed, essentially, where all these states are able to dictate their own rules. Alabama's deciding if you are a fertilized egg in a person or not, you are a person. Let's say a, a building blows up with a bunch of fertilized eggs. You've just genocided an entire, uh, I don't even know, but that's what the law would consider it. So what are your guys' thoughts on this, um, on Alabama's ruling? Where do you stand and where do you think things are headed? I think that when it deals with certain um, certain things that are brand new, like IVF, we shouldn't jump into conclusions and we shouldn't create policies until we have an actual idea about um, the impact that it could have if you were to create that policy. When it deals with IVF, um, a lot of these nations, even around the world, you'd be surprised, even in Europe, even in India, have decided have like started to create more IVF procedures to create babies from sperm and eggs to, without you know removing the aspect that if people can't conceive, then they will move to this option. And that has actually created a lot of benefits and safety in, you know, in terms of health, it's good because certain people, whenever they reach a certain age, it hurt, their fertility is really hurt. And, you know, people can have challenges conceiving. And in order to make sure that we can still have, you know, healthy population growth, there's benefits to IVF. Now, in terms of Alabama, Alabama is a very pro-life state. So because they're a very pro-life state, they're really anti anything dealing with abortion. And this is a weird thing where it's not really abortion. It's kind of like it's a creation of, you know, different particles to make a human. And I would say that without like with an embryo, it's like you will have embryos that won't become children and you will have some embryos that can become children. So you're going to have faulty embryos and you're going to have embryos that, you know, are fertile. So whenever that is a certain kind of case, you can see how complicating this sounds. In order to make sure that, you know, these technologies can continue to foster and build the way that they have been building to create a better, you know, more, you know, successful society, we shouldn't ban something and we shouldn't like outlaw it just because it's a lot more things that we got to know about. And again, frozen embryos are not necessarily children. They can be, but they're not necess they don't necessarily have to be. And now in like what it seems like from what I've learned from this NPR story, which I'm not like the biggest genius when it comes to IVF, so forgive me if I say anything incorrectly, 
you there is like a probability that the embryo will you know not succeed as much as there's a probability that the embryo will become a child so in order to make sure that we continue to foster the same level of technological growth when it deals with IVF we just have to make sure that we're allowed to, we're allowing the technology and we're allowing these like policies to continue so Alabama in my opinion is wrong on this because even if like you're pro-life or pro-choice I don't really think it has any impact on how you should view IVF because that's just a procedure that allows you know science allows doctors and medical experts to help you know parents that are struggling to conceive a child in terms of IVF we can all agree IVF is a good thing but the the main argument here is the moment of conception argument this is the same thing with abortion it's when is the embryo the fertilized egg in actual life and what Alabama is trying to set a precedent for is the second an embryo is fertilized that is the second it becomes a life. And what you had mentioned is it's a potential life. Therefore, it shouldn't be granted the, the, the rights that an actual live person would have. But someone that's probably Christian, probably more conservative, is going to argue that conception begins immediately. And I, I think that they just want to, in Alabama, kind of set a precedent. Because right now, after the Roe v. Wade repeal, everything we're doing is building upon new precedents. We're building the future of what our policies are going to be. So Alabama's pushing very hard for their argument that it begins when it's conception. I personally completely disagree with that. It, may, it makes very little sense to me, apart from a religious argument. And if you're going to base your argument in religious values, it's already faulty on, on the face of it, outside of a religious government. So... That's kind of where I stand, but I know Nick probably has some thoughts on this as well. Well, I guess I would just be confused how this would treat regular pregnancies. So the classic example that's brought up every single time legislation like this happens is, what if there is a natural miscarriage? Is the mother then at fault for somehow murdering the baby? Are there manslaughter charges? Like, who is to blame there? You know, maybe it's involuntary murder. I don't know what it is. Essentially, like, once you end up deeming um, that no matter what, this, you know, this embryo at a certain point is a person legally and is entitled to all those protections, all, all the whatever, right? Uh, to what Tyler said, like, at what point do you do that? Do you do that once it is capable of viable life on its own? I mean, that sort of seems to make sense to me. Or, for example, like, just common sense, no BS way is once the baby is born, yeah, it should be entitled to all of the legal protections as any other you know, as anyone, right? Anyone who is born and breathing and alive, like go for it. And that the last part, like alive is what people play with a lot, right? What does it mean for something to be alive, to experience consciousness for all these things? And I don't know the answers, but at the same time, I don't think our legal system does either. So, I mean, on the one hand, you have the religious background. On the other hand, you have what Pratik was saying about how birth rates have been declining in this country. Typically, the people pursuing IVF, they really want to have this kid. They really want to have the kid, love the kid, have a good family, all that stuff. Like, so all the, I don't know, a lot of the concerns that people might have, um, you know, I just, I'm just not really sure where this falls in terms of like, who, who is the party at fault here? Who is doing some evil act that is in some way hurting other people? I just don't really see that perpetrator, that evil person involved in this at all. And therefore, I don't think, well... I guess in the case of the couple that sort of started this, um, that yeah, if you go through the whole process, you spend tens of thousands of dollars potentially. I, I think the range NPR gave was about ten thousand to the mid twenties. Um, then yeah, you have every right to be pissed off if something happens to that facility where your embryos are being held. But at the same time, 
Like, what happens if the power goes out for a very long time? What happens if there's a natural disaster or a hurricane? Is the facility then still responsible? Legally, it would probably say, no, it's an act of God, and therefore they're, you know, not liable, and, you know, everyone's going to go home and wash their hands of it. But I don't know. I just, it makes me a little uncomfortable, the thought that, you know, through this treatment, and again, it's what Tyler said about where does life begin? Is it at conception? Which... (laughs) I mean, at this point, you know, this isn't traditional. Like. Yeah, exactly. It's not even conception through having intercourse. It's literally conception outside of the body, which is so weird. And that's why I think it all has to do with legal precedent. I really want the, I think they're trying to set the, the ground floor of life begins the second it's fertilized and you can't do anything about that. And I think that's actually the whole purpose of this ruling here. So clearly we all, I, you know, maybe we can get someone on the show that would, would agree with that, but I don't really know if I know anyone that would support that quite frankly and like you were mentioning fertility rates um have been dropping around the world by orders of magnitude so ivf treatment centers are are going to become more and more viable as more and more people use them and maybe this becomes more of a concern in the future i don't like seeing something like this but it is alabama you know at the end of the day if they crash and burn move somewhere else it is alabama you'll find better but with that let's move on to our next story here what do we have for you so we have Grocery stores. So FTC goes anti-grocery empire, blocking Kroger and Albertsons merger. So the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, has taken legal action to block the proposed $24.6 billion merger between Kroger and Albertsons, citing concerns that it would eliminate competition and result in higher prices for consumers. The administrative complaint filed by the FTC alleges that the merger would harm competition in the grocery market. Kroger and Albertsons, both major players in the industry, agreed to merge in October 2022, aiming to better compete with Walmart, Amazon, and Costco. Kroger, with its roots in Cincinnati, Ohio, runs an extensive network of 2,750 stores spanning 35 states in the District of Columbia. Among its well-known brands are Ralph's, Smith's, and Harris Teeter. On the other hand, Albertsons, headquartered in Boise, Idaho, manages 2,273 stores across 34 states, featuring prominent brands like Safeway, Jewel Osco, and Shaw's. The collective workforce of these two industry giants amounts to approximately 700,000 employees. The combined market share of Kroger and Albertsons would be around 13%, while Walmart currently holds 22%. Both companies have expressed their intent to challenge the FTC's decision in court. So... This is back to that same like argument. Should we have mergers? Should we have big monopoly, like oligopoly type companies merge together to create a monopoly? Should you have big companies merge with each other to create a bigger company? How will that impact you as a consumer? How will that impact you as, how will that impact the business as a whole? How will that impact the business's employees? How will that impact the pricing structure? How will that impact competition? It's a lot of question marks here. Do you guys have any thoughts? I know I have a lot of thoughts on the anti-grocery empire and whether FTC should block or not block. What are your thoughts on this? Well, Pratik, since you have a lot of thoughts, let's turn it back on you. We'll reverse interview you about this because you brought the story to our attention. <laughs> and play devil's advocate. So yeah. how do you, I mean, given the market share sizes that you mentioned where Walmart has 22% and the fact that this merger would be 13% of the market, do you think it really rises to the level where we should be concerned. I mean, as both you're both a small business owner as well as a consumer, how yeah. do you see a merger like this? Do you think the US government really has a role to stop it from happening? 
So I have like multiple, you know, ways of looking at this because I'm not really sold on either end. There's a lot of pros and cons to both sides of the argument. The biggest pro that both of these companies have, Kroger and Albertsons, is that they should, they would probably argue that in terms of a free market, it is best to allow these companies to make their decisions on their own without an outside third party player dictating to them what they should do. Now, Ultimately, with the Kroger and Albertsons, they own a lot of grocery stores. There are a lot of grocery stores in this market. It's not like the phone service industry where you have Verizon, AT&T, and T-Mobile after the T-Mobile Sprint merger. You have multiple grocery stores. So you have Publix. Um, you have Whole Foods, which are now owned by Amazon. You also have Costco, Sam's. They also technically operate as grocery stores. Sam's is also owned by Walmart. So then you have Walmart grocery stores, which is its own thing. And then you have the super centers. Then you have Walmart as a whole, which has their grocery store and their separate, you know, other, like all the other department store within the Walmart. Then you have Food Line. Um, and then um, Food Line, I think, is owned by another conglomerate too. You have Ingles. You have, um, what is this name? All right, Aldi. there's a lot of grocery then, stores. Yeah. I Pratik, yeah. I got but, it. But I let me it. ask you this. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so my point with this is that there is a lot of different, you know, grocery stores. There's a lot of, it's a, the market is kind of still big. And then, you know, there's also online ordering. But at the same time, it's kind of the principle. If you have two major, you know, two major competitors essentially merge, what you will end up doing is they will end up shifting the prices of that market to charge you higher prices as a whole because you have less other options to look at. That's usually the consensus. Where in this grocery store situation, that may not be the actual case where if they do decide to raise their prices, other stores are not going to raise their prices. So that's going to still hurt them a little bit. But it hurts the barrier to entry when you have more and more companies that are huge become bigger. It prevents the newer, smaller player from entering the game. Um, I don't necessarily think that we're at that stage yet. But ultimately, I think that in terms of a consumer, you want there to be more options. So you don't want there to be like one or two big brands. You want there to be more options so you can choose from things. But at the same time, it's this argument with the free market that if a company... For any company, any business, they want to do what's best for their company, their shareholders, their employees, their like, you know, their future growth, their market potential. And in order for them to be the best stage that they can be, this should be a decision made by them and not something blocked by the court system. But ultimately, I don't know the answer. It's a lot of mixed game. You, you're going to have some wins by one side and you're going to have some losses by another side. And the pros and cons kind of like outweigh each other. Yeah, so, it's a trade-off. I, I think in this case in particular, the reason it's so difficult is because, like you were saying, they don't actually own the so much of the market share where I would feel super concerned. And also, I feel like these other companies, Amazon, Walmart, they have such an advantage in the data side of things where it's almost like I can't even just look at the brick-and-mortar locations and say these guys have a monopoly when the data that Walmart and Amazon are able to use in something like grocery stores is so effective that I think these guys are going to have trouble competing regardless. So... For me, from my perspective, someone that is very willing to break up monopolies for the sake of a free and open market, I don't think it, we've gotten to that point yet. We should have, we should honestly have conversations about some of these other com, uh, companies, that, these conglomerates. Um, I think we should have more concern over those than, than specifically here. But what I will say is I've heard a lot in the past about how certain um, food manufacturers, like for chicken and Purdue, how they would 
uh, basically uh, uh, collude with their pricing. And they would do that across the board. I have not heard that with grocery stores, but I know that occurs a lot within the food industry itself. And I also know it's a very low margin game. So who knows? Maybe there would be some price manipulation if there is a monopoly. But at the same time, I like I said, I just don't think we're there yet. It happens a lot in big luxury type items. So there's certain items where it's like, you know, certain things that everyone needs or when it's certain things that like are like luxurious type items, you will see more price gouging. But like, especially when it deals with utilities and the cable industry and things like that, where if there is like one like cable provider, they control a monopoly. So then they basically run the show. Same with utilities. You some many, many areas have one energy company in their area. So it could be like Duke Energy or Dominion Energy or something like that. And those kind of like in industrial partners they will create a conglomeration within themselves. So that will create a monopoly. So I don't know, it depends. So we're not in that stage yet with the grocery stores that we can easily say that, but I think it all depends and it varies. Like with the phone industry, like people didn't think that you would have like four services, four service carriers, but now you only have three service carriers that are huge. But then you also have minor ones like Cricket, but they don't really count in the big game, so. I, am, I guess I'm glad that we're asking the question though. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, is this market even competitive? I'm glad that question's been asked. Nick, do you have any thoughts on this? Well, Pratik mentioned natural monopolies. And, you know, typically that's for very large infrastructure projects. And the idea there being that it doesn't make sense for people to duplicate the same exact lines. For example, you don't need 100 different telephone lines going across the same span of land. It only makes sense to have a few. Plus, you know, on the utility side, it's like, what, are you going to have like 10 sewage systems for your town that all crisscross each other? No, you're just going to have one. But that's for traditional big infrastructure. Grocery yeah. stores are not that. You can just have 10 grocery stores and guess what? Demand is going to be split up between them. And it doesn't really matter that you're building 10 buildings. I mean, if we were living in a world constrained by bricks where we only had a set quota, then maybe it might make sense. But as it is right now, the more grocery stores, the better. The issue, though, is, of course, you know, kind of the fact that it's not clear, right? On the one hand, like Pratik mentioned, you can potentially price gouge customers by bullying them through market share, right? Because they have nowhere else to go. On the other hand, or they have limited options, limited alternatives. On the other hand, and that means you get to bully your suppliers, by the way, <laughs> depending on the supply chain and industry or whatever. It's like how, for example, the Pacific Northwest is basically, I've heard it's referred to as a cartel um, for hops because that's like the place where it all comes oh, from. Wow. And they basically run for all. Anyway, okay, that's that's a separate <laughs> side because that's way upstream. And this is downstream, right? This is the grocery store that you're going to and purchasing directly at. So for this, look, the benefit, of course, is these two merge. And like any corporate merger, they talk about synergies, okay? Take any consulting firm, take anyone. They all talk about the synergies, the cost synergies that you're going to get here, the revenue synergies. And the cost synergies are, hey, look, they don't have to duplicate, to Tyler's point, all the same IT systems. They don't have to duplicate the same um, ordering systems, inventory management systems. They don't have to duplicate all these systems across their stores. They can combine all of it together. I mean, after some time, it's going to you know, have some growing pains to integrate, but overall, like by combining these together, plus, you know, having uh, firmer contracts where, you know, maybe they, as a result of being bigger, can have better terms with some of their suppliers, like all of this can be a very good thing for consumers, right? Because by merging, they could actually bring the costs down. But of course, 
that's counterbalanced by the pricing power. And it's all theoretical, right? We don't know. It's a bunch of counterfactuals. You don't know one way or the other. And the only way to know really what's going on behind closed doors, well, one, I guess you could look at comparables and see how prices are shifting across every other company. But two, you know, we need some insider trading. I want Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. You know those shows where people dress up like it's the boss, but he like puts on a undercover mustache boss. and long hair. Yeah, undercover boss. We need undercover congressmen. Okay, <laughs> we need someone going into these boards and just sitting there listening. And uh, not Nancy Pelosi though, because she'll do in- insider trading. Trump but anyone else, anyone else can go into these boards and listen in and see see the reality of what's going on. But look, ultimately, they like Pratik was saying, like. This space, grocery stores, it's so competitive. It is so low margin, like you said, Tyler. And the fact that that's the business, I'm not really too concerned. If it was something really, really important to daily life that like water. you know was totally different, that that would be another. Yes, exactly. Also, if just they're like making water. just crazy returns, if they're the Facebook yeah. and and they can just mm-hmm. make money spawn out of nothing if, with their advertising, that would be a concern. You know, if the grocery stores were marking up food like a hundred percent then I would have an issue. But they're not doing that. That's happening further up the supply chain at where the food is grown. I mean, for example, eggs, when eggs really went up, Mm. that wasn't because the grocery stores themselves put up the prices. It was because of what was happening with the eggs actually being produced. Pratik, what happened in South Carolina, the home of Nikki Haley? It's actually me, Tyler. So let me take us away. So Trump was (laughs) Nikki Haley in her home. In Charleston, South Carolina, Donald Trump emerged victorious in the Republican primary, defeating former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley in her home state, where she served as governor from 2011 to 2017. With the victory, Trump won 50 delegates in the winner-take-all delegate state. Nikki Haley vowed to continue in the race despite her tough loss, which, just as an aside, how embarrassing to lose your own state. I mean, drop out. Anyway, she said, she said, quote, I don't believe Donald Trump can beat Joe Biden, and quote, <laughs> Later adding, I said earlier this week that no matter what happens in South Carolina, I will continue to run. I'm a woman of my word. With each victory from Trump, the likelihood of a 2020 rematch between Trump and President Joe Biden grows more certain. And despite Haley's commitment to stay in the race through Super Tuesday on March 5th, coming up next week, it is absolutely clear that Trump at this point is going to be the GOP candidate for president. And I looked at 538 before this, which, by the way, guys, now ABC owns 538. It's weird to see their banner up there. I know it happened a little while ago, but Monopoly. still shocking to me. I was about to say but, the ABC Monopoly. <laughs> <laughs> but in any case, oh, my God, the polling Monopoly. Can we even trust the polls anymore? <laughs> ABC owns them. Disney owns anyway. the state of polls. <laughs> So what do you guys think of Nikki Haley losing in South Carolina and kind of, yeah, what this means for the the race coming up this year? This is a continuation of what we've been saying. We all knew this was going to happen. Nikki Haley's still running. Um, She could only be hoping that Trump just falls dead or goes to jail or whatever the worst thing that could happen to Trump, she's hoping happens to Trump. But even with that, I feel like there's some part of her that's like, I can't really dive into Trump that much. Not only because he is the constituents I'm trying to get votes-wise, but because I still might want to be his VP. And that's a conversation we're going to be having uh, next in our next topic. But look, this is kind of the end of Nikki Haley should anything not happen to Trump, which is likely to be the case at this point. It's likely Trump gets this locked up, and that's that's our nominee. So here we are. I still believe that it is in the best interest of everyone for Nikki Haley to remain in the race. The reason is, is that... 
these people, in terms of their election stuff, if at South Carolina primary, even before Super Tuesday happens, if they already have a decided nominee, it kind of distorts the entire election process because you have to have someone that's a com competition to somebody else. It's kind of like if you're going into a school election, you know, like back in the day when we ran for school president and stuff, where only one person ran. And it was like, okay, well, everyone has to vote for this person because we got zero other options. It's like a monopoly of candidates. Talk about monopolies is a monopoly of candidates. I think that you have to have another option, even if you don't think that option is going to win, is just the value of having an op opposite option. I think Nikki Haley provides that. Even if Nikki Haley stays in this race until the very end, it really doesn't matter. She's going to lose anyway, but she provides that alternative option that you wouldn't have if Nikki Haley dropped out. The problem in the past was this is what people were thinking would happen. You'd have Ron DeSantis run. You'd have Chris Christie run. You'd have her. You have Ramaswamy. You're creating a lot of options. So if you're not on the Trump train, you got other options to look at. But now it's like if you're not on the Trump train, if Nikki Haley drops out, well, too bad. He's your candidate. And I just think that in terms for the political, you know, sanity of the entire election process you have to have another option it's the same reason why glenn phillips is running against joe biden like who cares about glenn phillips the reason he's running against joe biden though is because they have to have if they're going to have an election process they have to at least seemingly be willing to have an election process and the way you do that is by having an alternative option by so, pretending yeah, so this is basically the same thing. The only difference is, is that with Joe Biden, it's like you already know it's inevitable that he's going to be the candidate of the Democratic Party. With Trump, it's like a 99% chance that he's going to be the candidate of the Republican Party. But there is a 1% chance that he won't be. And in order to make sure that if something does go haywire and something goes wrong, and let's say Trump does get banned in certain states and other kinds of things happen, that the people that are in the Republican Party ele electorate will have an option to decide whether they want to flip the script or they want to jump ship on Trump, even though it's most likely going to be Trump anyway, you just have to have that seeming choice. And I think that Ted Cruz in the past had the same thing, where if you go back into 2016, it was kind of inevitable that Trump was going to win and Ted Cruz was going to lose. And he had like, you know, six states he won and Trump won everything else. I think back then, same kind of thing was going on where you still had the you still had the Republican convention. You still had, you know, the people delegates there that were deciding who they were going to support. And it's all ceremonial. But in order to make sure the ceremonial element exists within the election, Nikki Haley has to stay in there for the long haul. And she already has the money so she can do it. Let me just go against you completely here. Um, I understand that's a point of view, but I will just say just have a farce election to pretend like we're having an election for the integrity of what no one there is no integrity in either of these parties I, I don't know what we're protecting here but in terms of you know trump locking up the election i just want to uh, let people know that ron mcdaniel who was the rnc chair actually just stepped down after south carolina uh this is reportedly because donald trump had endorsed a new slate of leaders and he criticized her and her ability to you know you know win votes in the past so just to show the amount of power that trump has in the party he's basically uh, deciding who the next chair is going to be and of course on his short list is his daughter-in-law laura trump to become the rnc chair it's funny how that works right that that nepotism but anyways yeah i just wanted to say for the actual uh polling that i wanted to say was on 538 so an aggregation of all the polls out there right now uh, for the republican primary shows trump at around 76 percent 
So he is higher than he has ever been. And that has just been growing over the past few months. So it really does look like, you know, Nikki Haley, for as much as, you know, there are some benefits for having the heads up um, match. She's just, you know, kind of losing it in the polls and there's no no real path for her. And so I get I get the part about her running because she said she was going to run. But after Super Tuesday, she really just should drop out. And the Koch brothers um, who, well, granted, one of them passed away, but the remaining Koch brother um, puts a lot of money into Super PACs. And um, they announced it was either yesterday or today that they're stopping funding that Super PAC. So, which supported Nikki Haley. So she's going to have even less money and less chance. And for Ronna McDaniel, I just want to say, she originally said Trump should show up to the debates. She tried to pressure him in some ways to do it, but he just said, you know, kind of gave her the finger and never showed up. And for Nikki Haley right now, the thing is, when you're challenging someone to be the president, you need to actually talk to them, right? You need to actually interact. And without having debates, with Trump in them, which he's a coward. That's how it is. <laughs> I know it's strategic. I know genius. it's whatever. No, no, he's not a genius. He's a coward. But <laughs> for I know it's strategic for him to not show up the same way that it's strategic for Joe Biden not to debate anyone else. But at the same time, like if you are trying to prove to people that you are more capable than the other person, you know, if you I keep getting recommended Troy clips on YouTube for that movie. And, you know, if you're going to be Achilles, you need to actually go one-on-one against someone like Hector, okay? You need a battle, and there is no battle right now. It's just social media posts from other states, and they're never going to interact, and as a result, we're never going to see how they actually stack up against each other as leaders. Guys, you heard it here first. We're going <laughs> to... So we're going to put them outside of the, the castle walls. We're going to have Trump and Biden, both with their weapons of choice, going after each other, and the loser gets dragged by a horse... <laughs> in front of their army and that's how we decide our leader but no trump 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 maybe trump will pick his vp pick that way i don't know he does have a short list though so trump does unveil his short list of vp candidates finally um in a town hall with laura ingram gearing up with the south carolina primary trump alongside senator tim scott who by the way trump just he's like tim scott terrible campaigner i didn't even he didn't even say anything useful but now that he says trump he only ever says trump and we love tim scott so you know, that's, that's Trump's view on Tim Scott. Regardless, uh, Tim Scott revealed Vice President shortlist to the world. His VP shortlist included three former GOP candidates, Senator Tim Scott, of course, entrepreneur Vivek Lightcake Ramaswamy, and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. He also confirmed South Dakota Governor Christy Noem, Rep. Byron Donalds of Florida, and former Democrat Hawaii Rep. Tulsi Gabbard to be his highly selective list. Trump did not say when he would announce his VP pick, but said they are on his short list and all these people are good. They're all solid. You got it. You heard it here first, folks. These guys are solid and, and they're good. <laughs> and that's all you need to know. So who's the VP, guys? Who's it going to be? I just got to say really quickly, I said this to Pratik like a year ago, but Republicans so love Tulsi Gabbard. And this too, is man. just it's case crazy. in point. The fact that Trump even said her name as someone he would potentially think of, I think as much as people gave Hillary Clinton crap for calling out Tulsi and all this other stuff, at the end of the day, like, this is pretty telling in a lot of ways. So Tulsi's on the short list. We'll see where she goes. But for Ron DeSantis, by the way, Don Donald Trump was so mean to Ron and nasty to Ron DeSantis in the, in the um, last few weeks and last month, really, when Ron DeSantis was running in the election still. And now he's like, oh, 
It's all wander under the bridge. I'll still choose Ron DeSantis. People like this guy. Um, I just think find that really funny. And for um, whatchamacallit, Donalds of Florida, I think that would be the best pick. But ultimately, I know nothing about him except for his name, his Donald, Donald and Donald. Yeah. They got to run that way. But of <laughs> course, Donald. Trump cannot be – Trump cannot ever choose a second Donald because then, you know, it would take the limelight away from him. There would be all these jo- – like, he needs the and attention. Then you'd be like, who's the official Donald, Donald everyone? <laughs> so who knows? Maybe it's South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem, a state with – how many people does South Dakota have? Like 500,000 people, 750,000? It's definitely below a million. Like, I don't know. I just find it interesting. But in a lot of ways, 895,000 people. Man. Oh, my God. A huge South state, Dakota, a man. huge state. But <laughs> I With just wanted to briefly say that having someone from South Dakota, I actually think is similar to or would be similar to someone like Mike Pence um, or the way that he appealed to evangelicals, where for Trump, it's really OK. He's not going to convert any Democrats right now. He just has to shift a few independents, but it's really like doubling down on the base. He needs to show rural America that he really cares about them, gets them. And having a running mate that solidifies that point of view, I think, is actually very helpful for him in a way that none of these other candidates add anything. Vivek Ramaswamy, the young person vote, you know, the you engaged random Internet person. No one cares about them. They don't actually add very much because the you don't care about them, Tyler, Nick. The probability of people like Tyler voting is much lower than all these 70-year-olds who are going to show up no matter what. It all, so, it's all strategic, too. It's like is Vivek has positives, but he's also like a Hindu. So you're appealing to these hardcore Christian conservative middle America people. No matter what you say, you have a brown guy that's a Hindu. That's going to be a hard thing to overcome. So Hey, he, won know, the social, he was winning socially conservative people, man. Hey, man. hey look. Yeah. I don't know. He was, Tyler, he did well in Iowa. Iowa's like one of the well, most— Well, you say well, 8%. He said, states. he was the one who said people would come up to him. They said we, they loved him, but they're like, I just can't. I just can't vote for someone that's not Christian. Like he had actually had people come up and say that. And oh, I well. get that. Like it, this is a big country. And well, I guess we I'm gotta, not surprised, but yeah. Yeah. It's one of those things. But, but hey. So I want to, I have my, I have some thoughts on this. So it's crazy how Tulsi Gabbard is a Hindu too, you know, like Hindu vote over here. But I think Tulsi Gabbard and Trump have very similar foreign policy opinions. I honestly think, and I mean, maybe because I'm a Republican and Nick's like, all oh, the Republicans love Tulsi Gabbard. But Tulsi Gabbard is one of the best speakers. Pegs on a board. She was one of the best speakers during that last 2020 election. I think she's really good at um, explaining and, you know, talking about certain things in terms of foreign policy and being able to elaborate it to other people, even if you agree or disagree with her. I think she's a better she's better at explaining Trump's foreign policy than Trump is better. Trump is at explaining his own foreign policy. Personally, I think she'd be the perfect secretary of state for Trump. I think, you know, there's certain people, certain qualities that people have. There's certain belief systems that, you know, entwine certain people together. I think Tulsi Gabbard's foreign policy opinions were what their foreign policy opinions were way before Trump even was in the political landscape. So I think that's interesting where she was always someone that was more about tariffs. She was always against, you know, she was she was never a really big free trade person. She had a, a lot of opinions about trying to make sure that we combat China, combat some of these countries around the world that are competing with the United States, and we need to have a global competitive advantage to you know those countries. I think Nikki Haley, uh, not Nikki Haley, sorry. I think Tulsi Gabbard 
um, will definitely be a better pick for a secretary of state than a vice president. And the reason I say that is because of these things. Like, Tulsi Gabbard, usually when anyone thinks of Tulsi Gabbard, they automatically associate foreign policy views with Tulsi Gabbard. And I just think that it makes, it's like a match made in heaven almost if she was his secretary of state, more than his vice president. Still a good, I still think it's a good VP pick. Even if she's better at secretary of state, I feel like she would be a really great v and i've said in the past i don't think the having a female in tickets is helpful i it's not changing it's, my it's more i'm more worried about her time. being a democrat that's why i'm worried you see you know it's like this it's like joe manchin like you know like yeah joe manchin is like more conservative but he's still a democrat like this is like totally good part i mean you're she, right she's still but a if she comes out and is zealous for trump and is like i'm here for make america great i'm Maybe against china whatever moderates. i feel like she might be able to repackage herself a little bit in that way and, um, but I think I think but you're you right, have though. to commit to that. Yeah. And this is what I've been saying. And this is where me and Tyler have also had debates. I think Donald Trump needs a female VP candidate because everything dealing with Donald Trump that is negative falls, you know, it's like revolves around his perception around women. So if Tulsi Gabbard or if Christy Noem were his vice president, it would be really good for Donald Trump. Again, Christy Noem is similar to Mike Pence. Hey, he won with Mike Pence. So, I mean, he can win with Christy Noem. But I think that they make more sense to me as opposed to someone like Tim Scott. Um, I don't really think Tim Scott really brings much to the table. And, you know, the idea is, that oh, Tim Scott's African-American and all this stuff. I don't think that when it deals with Republicans, Republicans don't necessarily vote for people based on what minority class they are. They vote for the most qualified candidates. Unlike the other party, um, Republicans. <laughs> um, but I will say that in terms of the uh, in terms of the VP, like you know, decision making, I do think that having a female vice president will be very beneficial to Donald Trump. And I think especially having a female vice president that is very good at speaking. You don't want someone like Sarah Palin. You don't even we don't even want someone like Hillary Clinton. I don't think that they would have made good vice presidents. But I do think that. Um, Tulsi Gabbard brings a lot to the table, but I do think that Tulsi Gabbard would be the perfect secretary of state more than vice president. And I just think Trump needs to find the person that would be the best person to move on his legacy, where I think Ramaswamy is a better option than a lot of these other options. But I will, I do believe that, you know, with Tulsi Gabbard, she'd be a really strong person to have in his cabinet. And he needs to make sure that he wins the female vote, however he wins it. Because that's where he's going to lose if he loses. Would you say he needs to grab the female vote, Pratik? Sorry, but, that but was where a specifically joke. are we but, going to? <laughs> no, hey, seriously. Like, if you have a guy who has who is just uh, charged with a sexual assault case, uh, granted it was civil. If you have a guy who said the "grab him by the pussy" comment, if you've like for all the stuff with Trump, why would you? Why would you ever want to be a woman VP to Trump? Why would you ever want power? That? Uh, prestige. Well, Why Tyler, would any politician Tyler makes, want a, good Tyler Nick, makes a good I point. Tyler makes a good point. If they that, have morals and values, that. probably not. But you think about it this way: like it's the same reason why, if you're a Democrat, why would you vote for a Democrat like Joe Biden? Because he's a Democrat. You want someone that has been there. You want someone that whose views and policies that you align with before you vote for them. You might be like Joe Biden is so old that he doesn't even remember he's president. Ultimately, if you're a Democrat, you're still going to vote for Joe Biden because Joe Biden is more, uh, you know, he's more like you in terms of your viewpoints and your, you know, pol political beliefs than someone like Bernie Sanders. 
That's the thing when you deal with Donald Trump. It's the same concept where if you have Donald Trump, Donald Trump has been there. He's an incumbent. You know what his beliefs are. He's like a well-knit package put together. You already know what you're going to get whenever you vote for Donald Trump. You've already and seen four years critique. of it. And I think because of that, if anyone was, this is the right time that any of these people, if you are a VP, whether you're a female, male, any group you are affiliated with, if you want to be on Trump's VP like ticket, it's going to benefit you in the long term where you're going to be able to do something in the future. I think like Mike, Pence, Pence. Mike Pence would have been the silver spoon to president if he did a few things No way. Mike no Pence way. was an idiot. Oh, he had no personality. I still, no one cared I still, about Mike Pence. Yeah, I, I agree, but that's because Donald Donald Trump chose Mike Pence. If Mike Donald Trump chose someone that was more charismatic and was a better like VP candidate, it would have benefited him. Probably maybe maybe it would have made him win the last election. Who knows? But I do think that Trump when it deals with Trump I, I think so, but see, I do think that Mike Pence was just a bad candidate. Like you need like but he Mike wasn't. Pence he was won. just like, a he, yes got, he man did what he was VP. supposed to do. Yeah. But I think now because you're dealing with two oldies and you're dealing with the incumbent president, even though people don't like Joe Biden, every poll says that Donald Trump is going to beat Joe Biden. Even then, he's still an incumbent president. So in order to beat an incumbent, you have to have an X factor there. And whoever Trump chooses to be his VP will be his X factor. There has to be, he has to choose someone that is going to win minds and win people's hearts to make them vote if they're not, if they're confused on whether they even want to vote at all. You're not going to win any Democrats, but you're going to win people that are on the fence of whether they want to vote for Trump or Biden, but they're going to go vote anyway. That's your voter was, base that he has to win. Let's get Tyler in here. I just briefly wanted just to clarify my point. All I was trying to say is that if you are a candidate who thinks you are weak with a certain group of people or really wants to appeal to that group of people and you've been, you know, criticized for a lot of stuff relating to that group of people, you choosing someone who represents that group, it looks great for you as the main candidate as Trump. He would look great if you know, a woman VP said Trump is great with women, whatever, right? That would be a boost for him, however marginal. But I'm just saying for that VP candidate, if your gender is the thing that is like the main thing about you, because so many female candidates are kind of pigeonholed into those types of questions. It's like, on the one hand, what you said about Tulsi being good answering questions, that's great. Benefit to her because she's going to be asked. She's going to be asked about this in a way that male candidates would never be asked about this stuff. And she's going to get hit hard on it. And just I'm just trying to say that as a woman running as Trump's VP, you are going to get a lot more flack than any other guy running. And as a result, I just think there it carries some risks as to your own political future, where if you tether yourself to this man, you know, given all of his personal flaws, I just don't think that it's worth that risk for this one election. But to your point, you know, maybe it's beyond that. Maybe we don't care about any of those things, which, you know, apparently all those voters who told Vivek they're not going to vote for him based on religion. Maybe we're not past that, but, you know, maybe in this way we've moved beyond it and we are this elevated society where we don't care what your background is. We just care about your policies. But, Tyler, your your thoughts on this. I, I just wanted to wrap up this conversation by saying with everything said, I don't think the VP pick is going to make more than a 2-3% difference either way. Like, at the end of the day, when you're picking Trump, you're picking Trump for Trump. Like, you're not picking Trump because he has a woman as VP. Because it's still Trump. He's 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 ninety nine percent of the package. You know he's going to be the figurehead. <laughs> that's so fair. that's the guy you're really voting for. So I just wanted to couch everything we said with that because like we can get all into it. But at the end of the day, it's like it doesn't Tulsi, get back a bar or not? Like 
Trump's the guy. That, but that's what I'm saying, though. I think only thing with Tulsi Gabbard is that, like, her foreign policy views are very intertwined with Trump, and she's a better version of the foreign policy of Trump than even Trump is. Like, she would be the perfect Secretary of State candidate if there was one for Donald Trump. Because she believed what she believed way before Donald Trump even had the idea to run for president. And she was a representative for many years and was elected on that premise because of what she believes in foreign policy. So I just think, and she was part of, she's like been heads of foreign policy committees too in the House. Like she has a lot of input and like, you know, value that she brings. But I think VP wise, you're right. I just think in terms of Secretary of State, she'd be the right pick. And, you know, there, it's a different conversation of, like, who can get votes and who would be best for the job. That's a totally yeah. separate conversation. But That's true. You know, we're talking on. about for, uh, foreign policy. Well, what about, like, all the foreign aid we've been given? I know the Congress and Senate's been debating this, so what's, what's the update there? So the Speaker is anti-making it rain in foreign aid. So the Senate engaged in a lengthy debate fueled by conservative opposition before passing a pure $95 billion defense aid spending bill. The package includes $60.6 billion in aid to Ukraine, $14.1 billion in aid to Israel, $2.44 billion for U.S. Central Command to address combat expenditures for conflict in the Red Sea, $9.15 billion in humanitarian assistance to Ukraine and Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, and $4.83 billion to support Indo-Pacific partners to combat Chinese aggression. Don't we love billions? Um, despite filibuster <laughs> attempts by Senators Rand Paul from Kentucky and Mike Lee from Utah, the bill passed 70 to 29, backed by Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and a bipartisan coalition. 22 Republican senators broke ranks, surpassing prior procedural votes. It includes a week-long debate since President Biden's initial funding plea for Ukraine in October. Senators Jeff Merkley from Oregon, Peter Walsh from Vermont, and Independent Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont voted against the bill, citing concerns over support for Israel military actions. The bill now moves on to the House, where Speaker Mike Johnson vows careful consideration, rejecting rushed approval. Johnson criticized the Senate's neglect of border security, a GOP priority, expressing disappointment in Biden's lack of engagement on the matter. Simultaneously, the House Freedom Caucus, led by Speaker Mike Johnson, is urging for a year-long stopgap funding bill with automatic spending cuts if concessions on conservative policy riders aren't secured. Amidst ongoing spending talks with Democrats ahead of a March 1st shutdown deadline, the caucus emphasizes transparency and opposes rushed omnibus legislation. Johnson faced pressure from his right flank to curb spending and include policy riders on abortion, diversity, border issues, and more. The proposed measures aim at various targets, including Homeland Security, Secretary's salary, Pentagon's abortion travel policy, and defunding Planned Parenthood. The latter... The letter, sorry, stresses the importance of eliminating unnecessary funding and suggests a year-long resolution to save $100 billion. Despite concerns about tighter constraints and opposition, the push for a longer funding plan persists amidst bipartisan spending negotiations. So this main story is about Speaker Johnson. So Speaker Johnson is going to be the make or break of this entire foreign aid bill that encompasses billions of dollars. 
that is all about providing foreign aid. And Speaker Johnson, at the same time while debating this bill, will also be talking about his stopgap funding bill for the omnibus legislation on how much funding is going to happen for the next legislative year. And I think both of these are in conjunction together because Mike Johnson himself is very is very conservative when it deals with spending. So Mike Johnson is probably the first Speaker of the House that we've had in many years whose main focus, if anything, is that we need to reduce amount, the amount of government spending that we do. So with that, all of this foreign aid stuff all parallels with it. And he's more anti-America giving foreign aid because of the amount of billions that are associated with it, where he feels that America doesn't need to provide foreign aid to everyone because we already have so much in debt. So it's a weird president. He's a weird speaker where this speaker is like the ideal conservative speaker that the conservatives have never had. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are on Speaker Johnson and the bill and, you know, his bill like ideas when it deals with omnibus legislations. Well, I think for one thing, because you mentioned the border on that, I think Biden's actually supposed to go there on Thursday. And the stuff that I'm reading, it's kind of funny because as we talked about the show, um, we've had this idea that, oh, neither party wants to touch this because it's a hot potato. Like it's a talking point for the election and Republicans aren't going to do anything about border security because they need an excuse to get into office. Like that's a reason to elect them. And the Democrats aren't really going to do anything because, you know, if Trump is all about that, if that's his main thing, they need to oppose Trump and, you know, sort of stand on the other side. Biden now, it seems like the campaign is, you know, having a moment where they're like, oh, man, we might actually lose, which finally <laughs> they're noticing it. So yes, good. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like an ostrich with its head in the ground. But anyway, so... They've seen the light now, and Biden's going down to the border. Apparently, when he's been meeting with governors the past few weeks, what's come up a lot is border security and what's going on with migration. So one of the ideas now, the theories, is that one is the State of Union address comes around, and two, with his border visit, he might actually start proposing that we take action on the border in a big way. And as a result, you're then going to have, this is kind of the you know, I hate to say political chess, but, you know, it's it's the best analogy I got here. OK, um, where if he ends up and if the Democrats end up sending something to Mike Johnson in the House to say, look, we want to have tougher border security. Mike Johnson, of course, has every incentive to turn down whatever the Democrats say. And then they're going to use that as a talking point to say, look, Republicans say they care about the border, but they won't even vote for our bills. And Republicans are going to say, well, yeah, it doesn't go far enough. And then we're going to get into this whole little like political gamesmanship thing where nothing really gets done. But you know what? The talking points will be there. So I just thought that was like an interesting piece, too, where, Pratik, to your point, for all the stuff that Mike Johnson is being pressured to add in, it looks like the Biden administration is trying to like take some of those wedge issues away so that they're not as much of an issue in the campaign. So that's that's kind of my take on it, which is, you know, as much as they want these things in, they're never going to get it passed. But for some of these fringe issues, if they're taken off the table, you know, who knows? Maybe the election does really boil down to just like two or three main things. I mean, as it always does. But yeah, Tyler, your thoughts? I thought you made a lot of good points. I just don't know that you can just get rid of an issue like that when it seems to be so crucial in every single election. And as we've talked about in the past, it's like Trump is known as the strong on border security. So whether the the whether Biden Biden today could send every military unit we have on the southern border, lock it down, just annihilating anyone that tries to cross, and they would still say Trump People is better. People still on the border. support Trump. Yeah, you're right. So yep. at the end of the day, I think you're right. I just don't think it's a winning 
strategic move, but, like, they don't really have many other moves. What are they going to do? Flip the board? Like, they're trying to play the game. They're losing the game. What are they going to do? So, at the end of the day, what I've been saying about this bill the whole time is the the Republicans are just not going to give them a win, no matter what. No matter what it costs, no matter if they're hypocrites, no matter if they're given on a silver platter all the cupcakes they could fucking want, it doesn't actually matter at all, because they know they need this election is bigger than this bill. It's bigger than any single bill, omnibus or not. So I think that's the position we're in. Of course, you could say that just by Mike Johnson's history, he was always going to do something like this. But in my, and and particularly you mentioned this is kind of unprecedented where we finally have this conservative guy. I think that's only the case because it's politically expedient to do so at this point in time. I think he would, is, would be much more willing to um, collaborate otherwise. Shout out to Matt Gates for uh, causing all, this whole avalanche. <laughs> just a huge mess. He really did have a he, big impact in American he, politics. I think... I think um, when it deals with Speaker Johnson, Speaker Johnson is the most ideal Republican speaker that they've had. If you look at fiscal conservatism and if you look at the you know, aspects of we need to spend less and we need to do less as a federal government, I think Speaker Johnson is the most ideal person for that face. I think he'd be like, he's more Rand Paul than Rand Paul could ever dream of being. I think it's kind of crazy when you think he about tried to filibuster. Know, Speaker Johnson. Rand tried. Think, he tried to talk for as long yeah. as he possibly could. Yeah, Rand Paul's a loser. But when it deals with when it deals with Speaker Johnson, one thing I'll say is that at least I will give him props that he out of all the speakers and anyone that's been elected, because I think Speaker Speaker of the Houses and Senate Majority Leaders have the most hard jobs of anyone else in the entirety of politics. People, you know, everyone is gonna hate you no matter what you do. Mitch McConnell is hated by Republicans despite Mitch McConnell doing more for the Republican Party than any individual for the past four or five decades. But he's still hated by a lot of Republicans because he's been there forever and he's the turtle and all this other BS, right? I think when it deals with Speaker Johnson, it's cool that he even made it. He's a very random figure. There was probably no one would have ever thought if you asked people seven months ago, like who the speaker would be and anyone would have even thought in their head, Speaker or Mike Johnson. Like, this is kind of a crazy thing that happened. Like Kevin McCarthy was like the face of the Republican Party, and he was bound to be the face of the Republican Party since they were minority, where they were the minority party. So I don't know, it's crazy to me. And I think what's also crazy is that this whole foreign uh, aid stuff, like if it was up to these other Republicans, like the Mitch McConnell's side, they're fighting for what they think is right. Well, well um, what is it? Speaker Johnson is fighting for politics. And I think ultimately, if you fight for politics and you fight for your party, that's going to be more beneficial to your party in the long run than you giving a win to the opposition party. It sounds awful because that's how politics works, but that's how politics works. So I think Speaker Johnson is a better like leader of the Republican Party than someone like McCarthy or someone like Boehner or someone like Paul Ryan would have been because those people may have caved in. While Speaker Johnson is going to do his best to not cave in, and that's why the Republicans may win more in the next election than they would have won if it was McCarthy. And even less will get done. Someone like that. And I think ultimately but. it may be bad for the country, but I think for politics purposes, you have to win politics. That's why you get elected. And if you're the speaker, that's your job. The country? Who cares about the country? It's all about the politics. It's all about the pegs. Hey, man. The pegs, the blue, the red. I mean, that's all but there is. But I will say, when it deals with Speaker of the House... That's their role. Like if anyone has a specific role, 
the role of the speaker is he's chosen or she's chosen by the people of the House, the of the Republican and of the Democratic Party, and is usually on belong party lines to literally be the face of the pegs on the board movement. So like it's ultimately their job is to make sure that their party votes a certain way. And if their party is not voting a certain way, then they need to, you know, ax those members of that party because they're not benefiting the party as a whole. And I think that's why Senate majority leaders and Speaker of the House's roles are the hardest roles in the world. And I think everyone hates them. But that's guys fine. critique, by the way, would be an excellent like in college when he was doing his politics. And th this is his role. If you didn't get that, that, that that's who this <laughs> man is. He would be the master at maybe you will one day. We'll see. But someone someone that's currently doing their political maneuvering Trump, of course, related to his handling of classified documents. So the Trump Hannity show in a recent interview with Fox News host Sean Hannity, former President Trump downplayed his investigation into his handling of classified documents. When asked about denying authorities access to the materials, Trump asserted uh, his right to review them under the Presidential Records Act. He criticized the FBI search at Mar-a-Lago, claiming they shouldn't have raided the property. Quote, I would have the right to do that. There's nothing wrong with it. Trump said, I don't have a lot of time, but I would have the right to do that. I would do that. <laughs> Remember this, and it isn't the Presidential Records Act. I have the right to take stuff. <laughs> like I can't even. I don't even know if this is a parody or not. But this is this is quoted, folks. So Trump mentioned cooperating with the FBI before the search, but criticized the lack of communication regarding the classified documents. So the FBI was there. They showed them the room. I told them it was okay. Show them the room. I said you could show them the documents. You could do whatever you want. <laughs> they could have taken the documents if they would have asked. They didn't ask about that, he said, noting the FBI asked for an extra lock on the room. The interview took place amid ongoing legal challenges against Trump, including a Manhattan prosecutor's probe that could uh, result in a potential indictment this week. Trump also denied any wrongdoing in New York's uh, appealed $454 million judgment in the New York civil fraud case against Trump. Trump also addressed the defamation lawsuit Fox News is facing from the, the Dominion voting system um, back in 2020 over his coverage of his false claims of the election fraud um, throughout uh, Trump. Uh, throughout, Trump dismissed the investigations and legal challenges against him. So... Obviously, this has been ongoing. Obviously, Trump's going to deflect and obfuscate and do anything he can to make it seem like he did nothing wrong here. We know Joe Biden had the classified documents thing as well. Maybe they cancel each other out. Any thoughts on this? I think that the documents are the least important thing when it deals with the entire election scale of anything that has happened, in my opinion. I feel like Pratik is Bernie Sanders back in 2016 when they asked him on stage, do you care about Hillary Clinton's emails? And he said, enough, I don't care about her, damn it. Like, <laughs> Trump, it is so ironic and funny to me that the guy who literally won one of the main reasons why he won was because Hillary Clinton was seen as some sort of corrupt person or irresponsible, that she couldn't be trusted for mishandling all these emails, right? And yet Trump goes ahead and he's like, oh, I, what, there was that interview where he was like, oh man, these documents, you know, these, there's some pretty secret stuff on here. You want to see, <laughs> he's like holding up the documents to show people who shouldn't be seeing it for the documentary. It's like, this this man, I don't know. It's just very funny to me that, again, one of the reasons why he won in 2016 um, is now one of the reasons that his voters are hand-waving it away to say, look, no one cares about this. It doesn't matter that he is. He was the president. Who cares? And the same thing with Hillary Clinton, frankly. It's like, yeah, she was the secretary, secretary of state. Ah, who cares? But it's like, no, Hillary Clinton matters when Trump does it. You know, it's fine. But when Hillary Clinton does it, oh, it's terrible. Oh, my God. This is the worst thing in the world. So. Wait, 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 wait. They were being hypocrites? 
That's not allowed. What? But <laughs> Joe Biden did what? it too, and nobody cares. He also has no, ongoing right. investigations. Nobody cares. When Trump does it, it's like Democrats are like, oh man, dude, Trump is such a terrible person. He'd be taking documents. No, Joe Biden to be... took documents too. Reagan took documents too. Bill Clinton took documents <laughs> yeah, too. Obama to, to took documents fair, too. You name it. Like, Pratik, to be fair to your point, now that it's come out that so many people have documents at their private residences, right? It's now bad, no but it is because it is. it's so many people. Yeah. In 2016, There's Hillary no Clinton was the only person with the spotlight, and that's why it was such a big deal. But again, it is slightly ironic. So just wanted to throw you that bone of saying like, hey, yeah, it's happening to everyone at this point. But for Trump, Oh, man, Mar-a-Lago. It all comes back to there. You know, he was running the presidency out of there. He had a huge security, like, huge security bills, like, all this stuff. I wonder how much money that property is actually worth. I know he lied about it by an order of magnitude of, like, 10 when he was applying for debt financing. But now that, you know, he went there all the time for golfing, that he has secret documents there, I wonder if the property is actually worth what he said it was, which was, like, half a billion dollars. Well, because he could he could just say my my name's worth so much that all my properties are worth ten billion dollars. Like, but then BS see, but that. Tyler, the whole thing there is that then he'd have to end up paying more tax, which that wouldn't be practical for him anyway. That's the whole problem with this whole case is that like you lying about how much your value property is worth. It's like if you're a hotel owner and we're like you own a property, like it's all perception on like yeah, but you're getting a bigger loan so you can pay the tax. I mean, no, but you're gonna end up paying more taxes. Nobody yeah, you're says they're worth more than they are. But nobody usually says they're worth more than they are because you had to pay like more in tax. And if you were saying your value is of like billions and billions of dollars more, you're going to have to pay millions and millions and more in taxes. Not a smart idea. But either way, let's move on. Let's move on to the other Biden because you got Joe Biden and then you got Hunter Biden. Now let's talk about James Biden because, you know, all these Bidens, they be doing their own thing. They hate Trump, but they got their own conspiracy theories of their own. So, Nick. Lead us on to James, the other Biden. All right, so this is from The Hill and CNN. So Republicans have intensified their questioning of James Biden, President Biden's brother, amidst the backdrop of Alexander Smirnov's arrest for fabricating allegations regarding the Biden's purported involvement in Ukraine. Of course, we all remember Burisma uh, with Hunter. So Smirnov's arrest has cast doubts on the GOP's case, um, adding complexity to the pursuit of potential wrongdoing by the Bidens. And by the way, just... You know, since we're on the Ukraine stuff, um, I just think it's really funny that, again, when Trump was president, he was like, hey, Zelensky, you need to send me information on the Bidens. I want dirt on my political opponents. And, you know, no one really talks about that nowadays, but fun little history. Anyway, during the interrogation, James Biden addressed questions regarding a $200,000 check linked to a loan from AmeriCorps Health, clarifying that these were short-term loans repaid promptly and unrelated to foreign affairs. GOP Representative William Timmons implied the checks hinted at a bribery scheme, which James Biden maintained their loans. Democrats have seized upon Smirnov's arrest to raise concerns about the credibility of the impeachment probe, further complicating the political landscape here. And as this investigation unfolds, Hunter Biden's deposition looms, adding another layer of scrutiny to the Biden family's financial dealings. So, Pratik, you wrote this story up. What is your reaction to the other Biden? So I think that this is the example of, you know, everybody likes to point out these fingers at Trump. Ultimately, this is election. This is politics. Both sides are going to do as much hunting as they can to try to disprove the quality and the, you know, perception of the other candidate to help their own candidate win. 
Democrats like to play this big game about how they hate, they don't like Biden and Biden is too old and Biden is too weak and yada, yada, yada. But ultimately, when it comes to push and shove and when it comes to politics, you're on one side or you're on the other side. If you're on the Biden side and you see all this stuff, you're going to be like, yeah, it's all fabricated. It's all made up. You know, Biden's okay. He hasn't done anything wrong. It is what it is. It's the same way that if Trump is in the same thing is like if Trump has done some wrong things, if Trump has done some things that are not legal or is not accurate or they're not the way they should be oh trump is terrible how can you even elect this guy he's such a terrible person yada 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 these republicans are a bunch of idiots how are they voting for this idiot called trump who's doing all this terrible stuff ultimately it's the same thing like this is what i'm saying like in terms of politics this is what you do you have to make sure that your candidate looks better than the other candidate this is why every time that there's a hunter biden story there's a new investigation that happens about trump like this is what literally happens in politics so it's just one of those things that like yeah i mean i don't know how credible this stuff is i don't really know how much about james biden i do think that all of this stuff was hidden away for that time period when the election was taking place because the same way that the whole email scandal and all that stuff was made known to the public they should have made this whole thing um you know dealing with the hunter biden laptop and all the things the shady deals that hunter biden and james biden had done also available to the public but they didn't do that they waited till two years later they made it all a hoax until they were like oh well this was actually real my point is it's the same as like you know them having the covid vaccine and then the democrats saying they will never have a covid vaccine yada 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 after biden gets a elected literally a week later the covid vaccine comes out from pfizer my point is it's all politics there's no right or wrong answer everyone is doing whatever they can to make sure that their side looks better republicans are going to go after any inch or like anything that they can see that would potentially help trump win and that's what they also did with hillary clinton when it dealt with benghazi back in the day and it's the same way democrats went on for four years trying to prove that the election was flawed whenever the russians rigged it but then later on whenever their election had as many holes as the last election it was okay because you know their guy won i think it's all politics there's not a right or wrong answer wherever side you lie on that's going to be ultimately how you feel about it and i think that's all it is i don't know if any of this hunter biden and james biden stuff account amounts to anything but it's the same way i don't think any of this trump stuff will amount to anything that's just how politics is everyone just gonna try to get their piece of the pie and hopefully their side does enough so they can help their guy win yeah. That's my but I guess the further away you get from Trump, uh, I mean, sorry, Biden, the further away is the actual person himself that did something wrong, the less it matters. And this $200,000 check, whatever, that's being interrogated. I mean, bribery or not. I mean, I, like you said, we don't have the details. I don't know. But this is small fries. And I don't think anyone's changing their vote based off this information. It's just this is politics, baby. They're just going after each other because they can and they should. So they will. And with that, let's move on to our next story. If you can't beat them. Join them. In, a recent, in recent geopolitical movements, the world is changing in Albania, Pakistan, and Indonesia. First, in Albania, Albania agrees to host migrant processing centers run by Italy, sparking concerns from human rights activists. Italy seeks assistance as migrant arrivals surge 55%, reaching nearly 160,000 people. Premier Giorgia Meloni aims to take divisive, decisive action. Despite opposition, Italy's parliament and Albania's lawmakers approved the deal. Albania's constitutional court rejects challenges solidifying the agreement. Meanwhile, the EU grapples with the sensitive issue of African migrants, which will be a key topic in upcoming elections, urgent asylum, 
and migrant reforms are sought to counter far-right narratives. So then, while in Asia, Pakistan experienced a significant shift in its political landscape, marked by the emergence of a coalition government amidst allegations of a vote tampering and military influence. The recent election results reflect a notable decline in the military's power. With the continued popularity of the former cricket superstar turned Prime Minister Imran Khan, who was previously impeached by Parliament for corruption charges. Despite Imran Khan's um, enduring popularity, his Tariqi and Saf party's failure to secure a clear majority paved the way for a coalition between the second and third place parties, PMLN and PPP, and PPP sidelining Khan and positioning current Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif of the PLMN for a potential return to the Prime Ministership. Did they call themselves the PPP party to get a loan during COVID? (laughs) (laughs) I'll read out what the actual party's name is, but that's the abbreviation. While in Indonesia, Defense Minister Prabowo Subianto secured victory in the presidential election, garnering nearly 60% of the votes. Prabowo emphasized the importance of unity in his victory speech, signaling a new era in Indonesian politics with his running mate, Jibran Raka Burning Raka. Into interesting name, set to assume the vice presidency. Subianto was discharged from the military and then got banned from entering the United States supposedly for, for doing human rights violations in 1998. But despite the UN's fears on Subianto's presidency with human rights, the United States and other nations have extended their support for the new president. That's it for the foreign policy shakeup thoughts. Italy, so just from my personal experience, so when I had first gone to Italy, I was probably like 11 or something. I'm 29 now. Um, so quite a while ago, and I don't really remember many Africans or Algerians in the country at that time. You'd see a lot of like gypsies, for instance, you'd go to Rome, they'd be selling you know, different pieces of merchandise when you're at the Coliseum or whatever. But then when I, I'd gone back like a decade later, there are a lot of like Africans there now, straight up Africans and Middle Easterns in Italy that weren't there a decade ago. This all st- likely stems from that huge migrant crisis we had in 2016. That was a huge talking point during that election. Um, but but yeah, it's actually a big issue in Italy where they had all these immigrants that came over on boats or whatever. And now they're just dealing with the effects, given that their economy is not already that great. So, yeah, this is having a pretty catastrophic impact on the country, but it's Italy, so it won't be solved. <laughs> And one thing I wanted to add, um, so Tyler talked about the PPP. So the PPP stands for the Pakistan People's Party. And then you have the PMLN, which is the current um, party that's in power, the Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz. So the PPP is, I don't know if anyone remembers this, that Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto. So probably the most famous prime minister of all time for Pakistan was this lady by the name of Benazir Bhutto who was assassinated. So that was the era of assassinations where Indira Gandhi was assassinated from India and Benazir Bhutto was assassinated from Pakistan. But this is her son that is like the leader of that coalition. And so it's interesting. He's like the new age, new wing within the Pakistani government. So interesting situation where you have their cricketing superstar Imran Khan, who is probably is one. He had, I think he had the most Test wickets or second most Test wickets of any cricketer in the history of cricket. He was like the best fast bowler of his era. So he became very popular, obviously, because it's kind of like if you had LeBron James run for president in America, and people were like, "Oh, LeBron James, he's awesome. You know, he's like the best basketball player of all time." Same kind of thing. Where like Tom Brady same, could pull it off? I don't think LeBron could pull it off. LeBron's not, like, not the smartest. Michael Jordan could pull it off. <laughs> if Michael Jordan ran and he was like, I'm the Maybe. people's person. 
and everybody's like, oh, Michael Jordan. He's like well, the best Well, actually, I don't know about that. Him. He was never like the sweetheart of America. He always kind of had that like edge to him. He's a He's terrible a Charlotte guy. Hornets owner. I don't know. Garbage. We Do we suck. want like a gambling addict as our president? I feel like that would probably... <laughs> For all of Trump's flaws, <laughs> the dude is not a gambling addict. He doesn't even drink. Look at Trump. But I think that's all we got. Nick, you got any final thoughts on Albania, Pakistan, or Indonesia? Well, Indonesia, I think, is actually a really cool country. So it borders the South China Sea, which is obviously where all the uh, tensions are flaring up with Taiwan. A lot of the world's um, goods are traded in the South China Sea. I think, you know, either half or more than half of the world's oil passes through that area. And in general, let me just scroll through the State Department to just take a look. It looks like we uh, traded more than $37 billion with Indonesia in bilateral trade, and we have $18.7 billion in U.S. For, uh, direct foreign investment. Of course, the U.S. Millennium Development uh, Corporation has you know half a billion dollars uh, funding some projects out there for energy and other things, but all that is to say, like $37 billion, what we put in this last bill in foreign aid um, was more than double that. So <laughs> I just wanted to say on the one, like compare one, how much we trade overall with Indonesia, which is one of the largest countries in the world and is the largest Muslim majority country in the world. Um, and hey, we get along great with them. We don't get along the best with Iran, but just wanted to say it's not always just because of religion. There are other reasons. Um, and then two, um, wanted to juxtapose the size of U.S. trade with them versus how much we put in this latest bill when, you know, Ukraine is asking for a lot of money, Israel's asking for a lot of money, what have you. But all that is to say, Indonesia, country to check out and watch, especially as things with the Chinese end up heating up. Because, look, I know we don't have any Ind Indonesian VP uh, picks that have come up right now. But, hey, in the future, if things really, like, heat up, hey, you may see, like, the U.S. Uh, US born Indonesian who comes out and is like, yeah, like, this is a huge issue. <laughs> Look at my family, and it, it'll be a whole thing. So, yeah, Indonesia, a country to watch. Very cool. And with that, I think we have a, actually have a gaffe that popped up, right, Pratik? Yep. So Joe Biden mixed up China and Russia in his speech. Kind of a crappy gaffe, but he did it. So What did he know, do exactly? We, we can, he was just like... He was just giving a speech, and instead of saying China, he said Russia. Yeah. Classic. He's like, I was having this Chinese vodka... <laughs> no. but anyways guys that was our episode of politicana today thank you all for tuning in learn some fun stuff learn joe biden had a brother who knew about this guy i didn't but anyways that's politicana 168 thank you all for tuning in we will catch you next week later